This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. You're listening to Eco Chic, a podcast about climate, sustainability, and eco-conscious lifestyles. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. My name is Laura. I'm your host and I am thrilled to have you here today. Welcome to the show. If you are just tuning in for the first time, let me tell you, you're in for a treat because we have my favorite kind of episode today. It is a Chic Chats. I love a call-in episode. I know that you love a call-in episode. And if you've never listened to one before, essentially a call-in episode is an opportunity for us to come together as a community over a central topic. Today, we're going to be talking about careers, and let me tell you, we have a lineup of some intelligent, innovative, groundbreaking, trailblazing, super smart, superstar women that we're going to be hearing from today. Five listeners. I'm really thrilled because this episode came together, actually inspired by an episode on careers last year. So this is our first repeat topic. Last year's episode came out on January 1st of 2020, and I can link that in the show notes if you'd like to go back and listen, because that's an episode that still gives me a lot of feedback. People are really interested in learning about how to maybe change their careers if you're college age, what kind of major are you picking to get into the career field that you're interested in, if you're already in a career field that you love, why should other people get interested in it? All around a really fabulous topic and one that I am really thrilled to be bringing to you again because we have such a diverse field of interests that are going to be shared today. So let me tell you what you're buckling up for. First, we're going to be hearing from Julia. She is a clean tech journalist turned communications professional for a renewable financing platform. Julia is a repeat guest. She was on last year in April. I can link her episode down below. Julia Piper is a clean tech journalist and the host of Political Climate, a political climate change podcast, bringing together both a Democrat and a Republican, discussing really high-level issues in the space. Fabulous podcast. If you enjoy this, I'm sure you also enjoyed Political Climate, which is currently on a hiatus, so we do mention that, but highly recommend her work that you look into it further after this episode. Next, we're going to be hearing from Corinne. She is a park ranger and a conservationist. And then we'll hear from Jaco. She is a sustainability analyst looking at the built environment. Next, we'll hear from Victoria. She is in retail and education for a sustainable lifestyle brand. And lastly, we'll hear from Megan, an ESG professional for a big tech company. So a huge variety of careers. I am so thrilled at all of the careers that are represented here today because 
A central theme of this episode is that there's space for everybody in the sustainability field. Sustainability and climate action is not something to be left up to just the climate scientists or just the big-time corporate consultants. There is truly space for every profession in this field, and it's a really exciting time to be interested in sustainability because there is the space for you to craft whatever path makes sense for your skill set and your interests. And we also have to keep in mind that sustainability, climate action, resiliency really demands that everyone be involved. Again, it's not just those select few people telling us all what to do. We all have to care and we all have to want to make a difference and we all have to advocate for those changes we want to see in government, in community, in wherever it may be, in those groups and in those workplaces. Someone has to be advocating for sustainability so that other people care And for that reason, there's truly space for everyone in this field. If you are in PR, if you're in economics, if you are an educator, if you are looking to start a podcast, if you're in government, there's literally so many ways for you to be involved in sustainability wherever you are or to craft your career to include sustainability a little bit more down the road. So I'm excited for this episode. I'm excited to share it with you. And I also thought that this would be an interesting opportunity for me to peel back the curtain a little bit and talk about my career because I don't really talk about it all that often and I don't know if everyone realizes that I have a day job. I love this podcast and this podcast is very much a business, but I also have a day job. I work in local government. I work for a large county in the metro Atlanta area and I'm the sustainability coordinator for the county. The title of sustainability coordinator is a little bit vague and that's on purpose. I do a lot of internal work because I work within the county, within different departments, across departments to figure out what they're doing, what programs are in place, what policies are there, and how can I be a support to them? So that's a huge part of my job. And then I also do community facing things. So with private citizens, educational groups, it's been a little difficult during COVID. But it's also really cool to learn how to properly write policy, how to interact with commissioners, how to interact with members of the public, and how to say, how do I make the best decisions knowing that these are plans, policies that are going to be impacting people for the next 50 years, let's say. That's a huge responsibility and one that I'm very thankful to have, but one that not a lot of young people want to take on or realize that they're capable of taking on and qualified to take on. I really like local government. It's not like I bounce out of bed every morning like sunshine and rainbows, ready to be a public servant, but it's something that really aligns with what I want to do. I have a more technical background. My master's is in climate science and solutions, and my undergrad degrees are in biology and environmental studies. So I was always in the science space, but always more on the hard science side, quote unquote. So I was doing research as an undergrad. When I went to grad school, I looked at things like greenhouse gas accounting. I looked at environmental economics. I always thought I would be in academia, frankly. I always envisioned myself being a professor and being like a lifelong student, which is not the career that I am currently on path to have. But local government allows me to really look at a community and say, how can I be most helpful? What climate solutions make sense here? And it's up to me to make those changes. It's up to me to write the policy. It's up to me to advocate for greener purchasing or private tree programs or how do private landowners make a difference. And also it allows me, especially in the area that I'm in, to be a little bit politically charged in my climate action and say, we need to make sure that our climate action is equitable. 
we need to talk about injustice and we need to talk about how a government is going to get involved in making sure that resiliency makes sense for everyone that we are advocating for. And being a generalist is both intimidating sometimes and beneficial. And by that, I mean, I can talk surface level about a lot of things. I'm very knowledgeable, you know, not to like toot my own horn, but with my degree and with this show, I've learned a lot about a lot of different things in the climate action space. So I can tell you about carbon pricing and I can tell you about solar panels, but I'm probably not the person that's going to tell you in depth what kind of battery technologies are available today and where they need to be going. So I know what it means like to understand things and also look for help and understand that I need to delegate and bring in experts when it's necessary. So as much as I am a general climate action expert and a climate change expert and a climate educator and someone who enjoys working in policy and in press releases and in programs and starting something from the ground up, once you get from the ground up, there are people that you need to pull in, such as those that we're going to be speaking with today. So that's a little bit about me and my job. I don't see a lot of young people in local government. And frankly, I didn't really anticipate myself to be in local government when I was in school. But I have to say that I I actually love working in local government. I really do. Because it makes me feel like I am being impactful. I'm the front lines of carrying out that climate action. And it's one thing to advocate for conscious consumerism, but it's another thing to demand it and to be in a position where I can seek regulation and standards and making sure that we're seeing things across the board, not out of the goodness of people's hearts to buy an electric car or plant a tree in their front lawn. I really like it. And so if you've never thought about it before, I do highly encourage you to seek out internships, volunteer opportunities, maybe even just a career in local government. I had a lot of experiences in school, both in undergrad and in grad school, where I worked on long, long long-term projects with local governments on climate action plans or on different, you know, climate sustainability studies, citizen studies, things like that. Things that I really enjoyed and things that were really impactful. So I didn't even anticipate that my resume was shaping out to be one so well-tailored for local government. But ultimately, it's something that I wish more young people would get into because it is invigorating and it's a space where we really need energy, I think. And then I would like to just point out that this podcast is very much a business at this point. In April, it will be three years that I am running Eco Chic, and it's grown significantly, also allowed me to reach a good amount of people. It's allowed me to have some incredible conversations and really be part of the movement that has allowed climate education to come to the masses. So a big conversation around graduate school and academia that I participate in quite frequently is that a lot of climate information and what it means to be a good environmentalist or a good climate advocate is gatekept by academic institutions. I believe that climate information and climate education should be widely available and accessible and palatable. And you gotta meet people where they are if you want them to care. We can't have these ivory tower climate institutions. And I think that the movement towards more general climate education has come a long way. And it's something that I love and appreciate. And I'm so thankful to show up for people and to educate and to be someone that you look for for information. I mean, it's frankly the honor of my career to teach anyone anything. But I do not have a formal communications 
background. I had to learn a lot of it on my own, a lot of it from scratch. And three years ago, there were podcasts, but not nearly as much as there are now. And there were none of those courses of like how to launch a podcast, how to get your podcast idea off the ground. It was a lot of blogging resources. So I learned from these posts of how to start a blog and blogs about blogging. And that's how I launched this podcast. And it was a lot of trial and error. And the first like 40 or so conversations were really with people in my community, my friends, uh, people in my department that allowed me to practice interviewing and allowed me to get my flow down. And I think I'm a pretty good conversationalist. Again, not to pat myself on the back or anything, but it's something that just takes practice and it's something that you're not good at right away. I wasn't good at right away. It took a long time for me to feel truly comfortable just holding a conversation. And if you didn't know, something that you'll notice in these episodes, and if you've listened to the show in the past or if you do in the future, there are no pre-written questions to any of my podcasts. And I'll tell you why that is. There was a time when I started bringing on guests where I was a bit nervous that I would have a lagging conversation or they didn't know what to expect. And I did that for, again, maybe the first 40 or so episodes. And I got more comfortable as time went on just getting to know what I would be talking about if it was a brand, if it was with a brand founder, if it was with an expert and we had to talk about their general industry or field of expertise. I do a lot of research before all of my interviews and when you have pre-written questions, some people feel very stagnant, like they need to stick to those questions. So I will sometimes have a bulleted list of like, I want to talk about your background and the challenges and where you see the industry going. And those three things will kind of roughly outline the conversation. But sometimes it's even less than that. And it's just, I want to talk to you about skincare. And that's all. And we get into it. And the guest and I will have a really great conversation with Natural Flow. And I think that really aids in the style of this podcast. It's supposed to be an eco-conscious lifestyle podcast. It's valuable information that you should be getting from your smart friends. And I, I love that about this show. I think I've also become a lot less rigid. I don't always show up as the most perfect version of myself because that's a little bit inauthentic. I allow myself to have spaces in my conversation. I don't have any scripts that I read off of. Sometimes I stutter a little bit when I'm having a conversation with a guest. But that's just how it is when you're on the fly and recording. And of course, there's editing and I will edit out little ums or if there's a long pause or, you know, sometimes my dog barks in the background and that happens. But at the end of the day, this conversation and this podcast and any information that you're getting from me, while it is research backed, I love data, I love giving you numbers. Well, it's research-backed, it should not feel like you're reading a report or listening to NPR. I love NPR, so don't get me wrong. But the point is for you to feel comfortable. So it's an incredible passion project that, frankly, has grown into a very full-time job. I probably work on this maybe 30 hours a week just researching and reading and getting back to people and editing and I've learned how to delegate some things and then some things my perfectionism kind of holds me back on sharing the responsibility with others but I love what I do it's not something that feels like a job and I have to say if you've ever thought about starting a podcast there's never been a better time to do it I think that there's room for everyone in this space And I also think that podcasters in general are really friendly people. I think that we're here to create community. We're here to be valuable. We're here to have fun. 
whatever the niche is, they're there for a reason because they want to connect with people. And for that reason, getting back to it, that's why these episodes are so, so special to me, these Chic Chats call-in episodes, because it allows us to collaborate and create community and be friendly and have a good time and really have an honest conversation. So that's another thing. I never really call these interviews because it's not an interview without formal questions. It's a conversation between friends. And for that reason, thank you so much for tuning into this episode. Thank you so much for continuing to tune into these episodes. Our next Chic Chats topic is going to be about living situations, sustainability within your families or your roommates or your significant other. How do you manage to compromise sometimes on sustainability at home? So I think that's going to be a good one, especially in relation to the pandemic. A lot of us are working from home. A lot of us have perhaps moved back in with our families during this time. So lots to unpack there. I want to be super transparent here and not like glorify all of the work that I do because I work a lot and I work on climate change, the biggest existential crisis threat that we have on our hands. And honestly, it gets really overwhelming sometimes. It's intimidating. It's really scary sometimes if I sit and think too long about the nitty gritty of what it is that I'm doing or even the big picture to say, either I work or society is doomed. Of course, it's not nearly that threatening on my end, but it's really intimidating and sometimes I do just need to take a step back and treat myself to an episode of Wheel of Fortune at night. Or I've been doing this thing for the last nine months or so that are screen-free Saturdays. I will try and spend an entire Saturday away from my phone, away from my computer, and it's a big reset for me. It's a really intense week and sometimes I do feel guilty that Saturdays I could be doing work, I could be catching up on emails, but I mean it's a lot sometimes, especially working in local government, working in Georgia, working in climate change. If you reached out to me between November and January, especially up until the Georgia Senate runoff, it is very slim chances that I responded to you because it was just an overwhelming time and honestly it's emotionally exhausting work to work in climate change sometimes and to work on climate education but it is important work. It's work that I'm deeply passionate about and work that I know if I'm taking a rest, I'm coming back better because I'm good at my job. I'm good at this podcast. Again, not to keep patting myself on the back, but I know that my strengths are in convening people and getting things done. And I always say this to anyone that I work with or anyone who listens to the show or asks me about my work style. I say that I'm not a handholder. I'm not here to tell you all of the right answers for all of your climate change concerns or all of your conscious consumerism concerns. I want to give you the resources and the research for you to feel more critical and better about asking questions of brands, of lawmakers, of everyone that you are getting information from. I want you to be a critical thinker on your own, and I am so thankful for the opportunity to be someone who is helping you open your own eyes. Again, not a handholder, But I'm here for you to say, all right, what kind of person do I want to be? What kind of community member do I want to be? What kind of consumer do I want to be? That's all on you. Thank you so, so much, like I said, for tuning in. I am sure you're going to love today's episode. Thank you again to our guests. And I look forward to connecting with you on social about how you liked this episode. You can find me on Instagram at EcoChicPodcast. 
I'm also on Facebook and Twitter and Clubhouse, which is my name, Laura E. Diaz. I'm going to have that all down in the show notes. I've had such good Clubhouse conversations lately, especially around climate justice and the Climate Justice Club that just opened up, hosted by Isaias and Zara. Isaias is queer brown vegan, who was our last guest, and Zara is soulful underscore seats. So I'm thrilled to be participating in those conversations in that club and just like popping into other people's conversations has been so, so fun for me. So anyway, thank you so much for connecting with me. I look forward to hearing your feedback. You can rate and review this show on Apple Podcasts if you enjoy it. You can follow me on Spotify and subscribe to the podcast wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. We've got some good ones coming up, let me tell you. And with that, let's get into it. Today's episode of Eco Chic is brought to you by Etitude, one of my very favorite home brands. I'm someone who thinks a lot about the environmental impact of my purchases, and I'm also a hot sleeper. It's kind of gross, maybe it's TMI, but if I'm in sheets that are too thick or even a little too scratchy, I'm going to wake up sweating and miserable. Etitude sheets are silky, silky soft, luxuriously soft. I always use the word delicious to describe the Etitude sheets because it really does feel like you're being wrapped in the nicest thing possible. Etitude sheets are also made of organic, clean bamboo that is extremely breathable. It's actually thermoregulating, so it seriously improves the quality of your sleep, so you're never too hot, you're never too cold. My favorite fun fact also is that their silky fabric is vegan because it's made from bamboo. Did you know that regular silk isn't vegan? Plus, silk sheets can get crazy expensive. If you're looking for the best sleep that you can get, why not try Etitude? Their amazing sheets have a 30-day risk-free trial, and they'll even cover the shipping cost of returns. Etitude sheets are soft as silk, breathable as linen, but at the price of cotton. You're going to love them. When you support our sponsors, you support our show. And right now, my listeners will get 15% off their sheet set and free shipping. Just enter the code ECO15 at checkout for 15% off your entire order. The only way to get that 15% off your set of Etitude sheets and free shipping is to enter ECO15 at checkout. That's ECO15, E-C-O-1-5 at checkout for 15% off your Etitude order. Now let's get into our episode. Julia, welcome back to the show. It is so nice to have you. And for the listeners, can you tell us where you're calling in from? Yes. Greetings from Los Angeles, sunny LA. Right. Welcome. Welcome. I'm thrilled to chat with you today about your career. So before we get too into the weeds with you and with your career story, tell me a little bit about your current role. Yeah. Well, I'm super excited to talk with you about my current role because I just joined a company called Lone Pal and I'm still processing what it means to have made a leap into this world of payment platforms for sustainable technologies from the journalism world. And yeah, so my role there is to lead communications and policy. They totally intersect, but they're also different in some ways. So I'm excited to sort of carve out this space at the company and really just figure out how we tell the world about all the solutions that they can adopt that are at their fingertips and that we can basically finance for them so that they save money from 
day one, from month one. And I think there's so much untapped opportunity there. Um, depending on how you analyze it, consumer decisions are responsible for 40% of greenhouse gas emissions. So things like the car you choose to drive, the way you heat your home, what kind of stove you have, um, whether or not you get solar, you know, your electricity. So if we can tap that 40% and make it cleaner, um, I think that would be a huge win. It's not the only thing that needs to be done, don't get me wrong, but uh, it's a big, big part of the problem. Wow. When you say that you're looking to communicate these very important consumer decisions and emissions, are you talking to corporations? Are you talking to everyday consumers? Like who is it that you're helping finance these decisions? So LoanPal actually, it's a payment platform. So it makes it possible for consumers to pick how they want to finance, say, solar. And we're actually the number one solar financier in the country today. But now we also do everything. It could be your heating and cooling system. It could be a smart thermostat. It could be a battery. And we basically enable people to package it and, and finance it for them in a really convenient, seamless way. But our real direct uh, users are actually installers. They're contractors. They use our apps. They use our technology to present it to the consumer to make it seamless for them. So we're really a job creation platform because again, those installers can use our digital and financial tools to offer financing to consumers so they can get the solar panels, they can get the HVAC system that's efficient. And so we actually support uh, more than 20,000 jobs right now on the platform. And that's only growing because we're incorporating more products and reaching new geographies. So it's like a really awesome job creation program that I'm psyched to be involved with. Wow. Well, it definitely sounds like you're really excited about it. Thank you so much for laying that out. And I want to talk about you and this new role you're in. You mentioned recently you made a pretty serious career switch in the same general field, I suppose, but also in completely different fields. So tell me a little bit about your uh, about your career switch. Yeah, um, I'm so grateful for this opportunity because, again, I feel like I'm still analyzing it. And for me, my career was really a part of my own identity. I got into journalism at like an early age, even in high school or before then. And I knew I wanted to be a journalist. And I wanted to travel the world. And I ended up covering for the past 10 years climate and energy issues at a pretty wonky level. You know, I was covering legislation in Washington, D.C., and then I covered the clean tech ecosystem of startups and big companies out here in California. I'm originally from Canada, so I, you know, I had this desire to figure out how energy is involved with national economic policy, because that's a big thing back in Canada where I'm from. So it was an amazing opportunity. I got to travel the world, created a, a podcast of my own called Political Climate, which we had to just put on hold in order to explore this new career. And I think I was really drawn to it because after a decade of covering climate change, the one thing you take away is just how severe the problem is and how quickly we really need to act. And at some point, you know, I felt like journalism is super valuable, still feel that to this day, but I wanted to be a little more hands-on. And this company, LoanPal, as I mentioned, it's both connecting consumers, the installers who are deploying these te technologies, also with the financial institutions who provide the capital so that people can purchase these technologies and finance them over time. Um, so it's like all these major stakeholders. And I just came to appreciate actually through my reporting, just how important it is to harness all of these people and to really ultimately mobilize money toward green ends at the end of the day. Climate change is gonna require us investing and, and spending $1.5 trillion a year globally. That's what the UN and others have analyzed. This is to meet our net zero targets. So how do we mobilize those, those dollars? What do we put them in? We wanna put them in low carbon solutions. And so 
this platform at Lone Pal is a conduit for making that happen to enable really everyone to live more sustainably while creating mission-driven jobs. And so I came to appreciate what that was all about and reformed my whole career to do it. Wow. Well, I like that a lot that you really emphasized how valuable your reporting and your work in journalism has been in kind of helping you rethink the convening of people and getting that story told so that you can get the money where it needs to be. And I also think it's really cool that you work with finances and a platform to fund a lot of these low carbon solutions when you're not necessarily a finance person. You understand it and you come from a world where that's really important, but it's not like you went to business school and woke up one day. Did you, did you go to business school? I don't know. No, I did not go to business school. (laughs) Okay. I love that because I think that there's also this misconception that the business world or the corporate world or the finance world has to be a certain type of person. And you really have knocked that on the head and said, I have really valuable experience that comes from another sector altogether and I'm going to make it work here. Well, that's the thing is I think the storytelling piece of it is super critical to all of, all of this. You can do the work, but ultimately you have to like bring in the consumers, you have to mobilize and give the tools to the installers, you have to like get the financial institutions excited about the opportunity so that they're willing to fully reform everyone's pension funds to invest in cleaner solutions. You know, there's a lot of education that has to happen and really it's about education. And that's, I think, where my storytelling background comes in. But yeah, my message to anyone is like, be be open to opportunities that come to you because I never thought I would be doing this. But it is interesting how, you know, again, the drive to be part of the solution more directly, leveraging my tools and knowledge from the past with seeing where the conversation's going. It's just amazing where you'll end up. (laughs) And I really hope that we can mobilize the dollars needed fast because we really have a decade to do this. Climate change is like a $10 trillion problem in the U.S. alone. How do we get at that? And it turns out it's harder than just saying it's a $10 trillion problem. At the end of the day, you have to do it. And that's the thing I've really come to have appreciation for is is the doing and how to ultimately get it done. This podcast that I mentioned, Political Climate, which we are pausing, I just want to say again, I hope people go back and maybe check it out once you're done listening to Eco Chic, because we had a whole series called Ditch that looked at this finance question about fossil fuel divestment and green finance and how the big banks, pension funds, uh, other kinds of financial institutions are switching where they put their money. And again, that was really something that opened my eyes to why this monetary piece is important. I would consider myself kind of a hippie. Like I grew up in Canada. I went to school in Montreal and I don't know. I just never thought I'd work in a, the financial element of the climate fight. But doing that series really opened my eyes to the the levers that are there and just how we need to make the green economy just the economy. Like we just need to make everything greener and we need to make it work for everyone. And that means creating jobs along the way and being equitable in how we deploy solutions. But um, as one local grassroots group told me, like capacity for these local grassroots organizations is just a matter of zeros. We got to get them more jobs, got to get them more money, got to get investments in their community. And so in working on political climate, it came to appreciate the role that the financial levers have to play. And it really kind of opened my mind as a, as a composting, mason jar drinking, <laughs> mostly vegetarian gal that maybe I'll have to learn a little bit about business. Oh, I love that. No, I appreciate that. Something that I, I really want to ask you now, since you are not only so deep in the trenches of the 
literal political climate that we're living in today, but also thinking about financing green jobs, thinking about capacity for these grassroots groups. How do you feel the Biden team's climate plans are going to impact funding that green economy becoming the economy? Yeah, I think it's difficult because we're in a very divided time. And, you know, again, the podcast that I mentioned, uh, we brought together Democrat and Republican every show. And part of the reason we paused was because that just felt really hard to do in an honest way right now. Like we are divided. And I think we're seeing Biden's policies receive pushback for, for those reasons. But I think a lot of the experts would say they're necessary. And if you don't lead, then you know nothing happens. And so personally, I do feel like there's going to be a lot of opportunity that comes with this. It does take a tone from the top. Um, but the reality will be the work that happens at all levels on the ground to really enact those policies and really get people on board with them. We're just at the beginning of this, a really taking the theory of a green job and really making it a reality. And so it's great that Biden has taken some concrete steps to do that. Now we have to show that it works and it can work for everybody. Corinne, welcome to the show. I am thrilled to have you here today. And for those tuning in, can you tell us where you are calling in from? Sure. Uh, Again, thank you so much for having me. I really am privileged to be here with you today. I am tuning in from St. Louis, Missouri in the U.S., Love it. St. Louis always makes me think of Nelly, the rapper. Like he, all he ever talks about is St. Louis. So anyway, tell me a little bit about your job, your current role. Yes. So my current role is as a park ranger. I work on a migratory bird sanctuary. It's a very different kind of position as a park ranger. I'm more of the outreach and education specialist for our location, for our area, which is situated along the Mississippi River. So I do a lot of science communication and working with uh, students in classrooms, or right now it's more so in a virtual setting or in virtual programming. And I also do a lot of different outreach events or special events whenever we are able to have them, Um, as well as environmental stewardship, which is more of like more of an environmental study or a biological survey um, team, as well as uh, the kind of recreation team that we have. Very cool. It sounds like you wear a lot of different hats. And the first thing I want to talk to you about is science communication, because I feel like that's a very hot button topic right now, especially just in the current climate we're in. Tell me a little bit about science communication. Did you have a background in that? Did you go into your career field planning on being an educator? You know, I, I actually didn't. It just kind of, kind of happened upon me. Um, In college, I worked actually at the science museum that we have here in St. Louis as a science educator. And that was kind of my introduction into the whole science communication world. It wasn't ever really what I saw myself doing. I was actually, um, especially as a student and as a young adult, I was kind of mortified of public speaking or being in front of people. I never thought that I would ever want to be an educator or want to teach people. But then once you really just get thrown into it, I got really used to public speaking. I really found a passion for teaching specifically students really of any age, um, as well as the general public. The more that you get to really interact with people and see their interests peaked, 
in certain topics, the more that um, you can, you get more attached to that, that teaching component. So anytime that I, I do have the ability to talk to someone and get them inspired about something that's nature-based is just, it's one of the highlights of, of the job. I love that. So heartwarming to hear, just like the idea of getting someone excited about nature and learning something. And I also want to talk a little bit about this this way that you're able to entice people. And you said that you work at a migratory bird sanctuary. Is that correct? That's very specific. So tell me a little bit about that. Were you always a big birder? Did you fall into this career field? Did you fall into this niche of nature? Um, that's another thing I did actually just kind of fall right into it. My background is more so in uh, wildlife conservation. My degree is in just basic biology with an emphasis on evolution, ecology, and organismal biology. And funny enough, the only zoology course that I did not take was ornithology, so the study of birds. I did not study that. And then I actually interned with the National Audubon Society, and that kind of just sparked a love and fascination and appreciation of birds. And then I also happened to find myself at a migratory bird sanctuary. So what that entails is really just a lot of different habitat. It's been uh, nationally recognized by the National Audubon Society as an important birding area. The location of where we're located is right in between the confluences of the Missouri and the Illinois River within the Mississippi River watershed. So that's one of part of the largest migratory flyway that birds will use is the Mississippi River flyway. It's kind of like a highway for birds essentially and how they they migrate in both the spring and the fall. So we see a really large influx kind of all throughout the year and it's ever changing based upon that location. We see anywhere it's, it kind of really just depends on the time of year, but, but we've had over 300 different bird species that have been recorded at our area of the river. So it's just a really great place for wildlife, specifically birds. That is so cool. I'm kind of living for this conversation. I took a bird class in college at a, um, at a field station one summer. I took an ornithology class. I always call it bird class, but it was like the first true outdoor field experience that I had and it was like where I learned how to hike and where I learned how to really be aware of what's around me I got really good at like spotting lizards in the trees like all of these you know kind of random hiking skills that I acquired but ornithology is a really interesting field to me and I don't want to get too in the weeds with you with about ornithology but I'd love to talk a little bit more about your career because a lot of these things say you've kind of mentioned you have fallen into education or you fell into ornithology so what kind of path did you expect for yourself, I guess, coming out of college? And how does that compare with how you, how you are now leading your career? Yeah, great question. I had this, this whole dream of working to save endangered species, working on some kind of conservation in some kind of conservation role, specifically with, with endangered species. Um, and I had, a, I had a little bit of a plan there to move down to South America and live a little bit somewhere more tropical and warmer. And I quickly kind of found that that was really competitive. So I actually just kind of bopped around from different educator or environmental jobs within the region here. 
Um, I was a zookeeper for several years, which was really fun. Um, that further reinforced my, my love of birds. I worked a lot with macaws. So that was another great thing that really just led me to this role within working at the Migratory Bird Sanctuary. So my passions really have always been with in endangered species or species conservation and raising awareness about species conservation. Um, like I said, birds were really not my, my thing originally. I was really interested and did research on, on herps. So the study of herpetology, I'm really into frogs and toads. So that was originally more of my intention was to do amphibian conservation, but birds, it's close enough very close, you know, and I get to experience a lot of different cool herps on a daily basis still in the summer. So it works out. Oh my God. I could talk to you about this all day. I was also very interested in evolution and that was my original plan for my life as well. And I, all I wanted to do was be a field biologist until I graduated from college and we can get into that some other time, but I spent a, a summer studying anoles in South Florida and the evolution of anoles and like those uh, microevolution events. And that was so fascinating. I think that looking at animal species in relationship to how they migrate, how they change with their resource, uh, with their resource uses, especially considering climate change and these very interesting small pressures that you're putting on species, honestly fascinating. And I think that there are certain species that there's only so many experts in. And like, that's the interesting thing about any sort of animal research is that if you are, you know, the hurt person of the Mississippi river, like you're it, like you are the expert. And it's, it's really interesting to think that people will always look at you as the expert in whatever very specific animal biology thing that you're doing. If you're also the educator. Absolutely. One of my favorite things, I also like bugs a lot too. So just all kinds of different animal life forms. Some of my friends will specifically send me photos all the time of different bugs or frogs or snakes that they find. And it, it truly is like one of my favorite things to do is when someone sends me a message and, and asks like, can you ID this? Tell me what this is. Tell me if it's going to hurt me. It's just, again, it's more of that appreciation, like they're, they're growing an appreciation for this thing. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. So I also have to ask you in your day-to-day life, when people are casually asking you about, you know, if it is identifying something, if it is about your career path, how do you kind of navigate that personality full of all these trivia fun facts? Like how does this influence the rest of your life? Do you feel like your personality is deeply tied to your career? I, I, I do. Um, I've, I've kind of always had this, this more so fascination with wildlife and with conservation. One of my earliest memories, I can remember like watching the Discovery Channel with my grandpa, who was also really into conservation and recreation. So I think that it has been kind of like deeply rooted within me for a while there growing up. I always thought that I was going to be a veterinarian. So it's always been something more animal based and focused. The science communication is what really um, came out of the, the blue for me. I just did not know that I would be so into teaching and communicating with others. 
That's so cool. That's so cool. If you were to give yourself advice at the beginning of your science communications career, because that sounds like the newer thing in your job field, what kind of advice would you give yourself? You know, always, I would say always keep learning and pushing yourself. Um, I was much more of, at least in, in uh, grad school and in undergrad, I was really shy. I did not um, do too much reaching out and incorporating myself into outside groups or organizations. And I really didn't have much practice in science communication. And I, I was just, I was really nervous speaking in front of people, especially in front of crowds. But the more that I put myself out there, the more easily I adapted and acclimated. And once you really just start to like grow that skill set, it kind of, things just kind of fall into place and you become, I think you develop better ways to communicate effectively and to reach a more broad and diverse audience just with the more that you practice and the more that you, you try and reach, reach a variety of people in a variety of ways. Yeah, yeah, especially it's interesting that you say reach a variety of people in a variety of ways because it sounds like you deal with a lot of different groups of people. You have school groups, you have kids of all ages, you have adults, you have the general public you referred to as. So you really have to change that messaging even if you're talking about the same thing for whoever it is that you are dealing with. Yeah, absolutely. Some people will, um, especially since we're a migratory bird sanctuary, we have a lot of birders that will specifically come out and utilize the, all of the wonderful things that they can do to watch birds, which is great, but they have a very particular type of communication, a very particular type of interest in comparison to our fishers that will visit our site. And that's very different than our school groups that are just there to experience the wetlands or to experience the prairie. So it, it definitely does keep things really dynamic and, um, and interesting from group to group. It's really interesting to see them interact with one another and then they can also learn things from one another. Yeah, I like that a lot. And something that you kind of alluded to, which I thought was interesting, was birder culture versus mm -hmm. the people who are interested in fisheries or school groups and getting to know your audience from that kind of subculture perspective, I feel like must also be so interesting because within any group, I'm thinking even within like podcasters or even within like people from Missouri or even with, you know, like whatever it is that you are kind of belonging yourself to, there's slang that goes along with it. There are like cultural icons within that group and the same thing happens with birders. So I think it's really interesting to think that you have to get to know that audience so well to be able to really communicate effectively with them. Absolutely. I think that that's, it's a really important part of being, being a science communicator, being an educator is being able to really find what those different groups, what interests them, and then specifically be able to communicate in a way like birders, for example, they're very particular about their, their species and about how you can identify species to species. So it is, it's super interesting to, to learn from birders too. They're a great resource or really anyone that's like an expert in their, their certain field. They're some of the best resources that I can use if I am in encountering a songbird. Like there are so many different kinds of sparrows that we'll have. And I have not the best knowledge in identifying songbirds from one another. You can just reach out and ask one of our, our resident birders, like what's the best way to identify 
this sparrow from another sparrow or how can you identify their calls? And they're so happy and willing to share that knowledge that they have too. Yeah, you're totally right. I, first of all, I love watching people identify bird calls just like out of earshot. It is fascinating because it is such a skill and such a, such a training that you have to put yourself through on an individual level. It's not really something that you can just be taught. Like you have to really actively practice recognizing bird calls. And something else that you mentioned that I think is so cool is to think about learning from people who are experts in their field, whether it is a hobby or a profession, because I think of it a lot also as like informational interviews. I always recommend that if someone's looking for a job, they try out informational interviews because people love to talk about themselves. And so to listen to someone talk about their expertise or their hobby or their like genuine passion is the best resource that you can get. And even if you're like, oh, give me five minutes of your time, people will talk forever if it's something that they love. Yeah, absolutely. I, um, if people get me going about frogs or about birds, it, it happens. So absolutely. I would say for those that are really wanting to get into a field of either conservation or um, recreation of any, in any capacity, I would say just try out a lot of different things. Um, it took me, it took me a while to get to where I finally found myself um, in a role as a park ranger. I, like I mentioned or alluded to, I bounced around for like many years trying to figure out what exactly what niche was best suited for me and kind of what my, where my passions truly lied. So be patient with yourself and give yourself lots of different avenues in which you might be able to see a future career. And then at least from my experience, things really naturally and organically fell into place. Jaco, welcome to the show. Welcome to EcoChic. I'm thrilled to have you here today. Uh, for our audience tuning in, where are you calling in from? Yes. Hi, Laura. Thank you so much for having me on. My name is Jaco Selka, and I am calling from Atlanta, Georgia. Great. It's so nice to have a fellow Georgia resident, I suppose. I'm a new Georgia resident, and you're a real Georgia resident, but it's nice to chat with you. Tell me a little bit about your job and your current role. Yeah, so starting in January of 2020, I started my first job after college graduation, and I am a sustainability analyst for a company called Servidine, and they are an engineering consulting firm based in Atlanta, Georgia. What does that mean, sustainability analyst for an engineering firm? Yeah, so it's actually a really interesting question. I see so many different roles called or titled sustainability analysts. And I feel like every single sustainability analyst probably does something completely different. Um, it was definitely a question that I had during my interview process because I did not go to college for engineering. So going to work at an engineering consulting firm was a little intimidating at first. And I'm actually the first non-engineer that they've hired. So that's been really interesting. I work with all engineers, so not coming from the engineering field. It's been um, an adjustment, just getting to kind of see a different perspective of the sustainability field. Um, but it's been really great to work with other people. And I've learned so much about engineering. So as a sustainability analyst at the company, I help with lead certifications. We work mostly in the existing building sector. 
So it, they're all buildings that have already, you know, been built and our people are working in them. So we mostly do office buildings. So in addition to LEED certifications, I don't know if people have heard of something called GRESB, but it stands for Global Real Estate Sustainability Benchmarking. And it's basically a sustainability sort of report card for real estate portfolios. So we have a client with about 500 assets and we have to track all of their utility data for the past two years, in addition to different sustainability projects that they do. And basically the portfolio gets a sustainability score at the end of the um, two year period. And investors are really starting to focus on sustainability, which is really exciting. So I think a lot more real estate portfolios are going to start applying for this rating and really starting to try and implement different sustainability measures so that they can keep improving that score. And then I guess the third part of what I do has really been brought about by the pandemic. Our company had to shift our entire focus when the pandemic hit because most of our work, we were traveling, doing lead site visits, different things like that. So that's obviously all been halted from the pandemic. And if listeners have heard of FitWell or Well certifications, they're different wellness certifications that buildings can get. So they're similar to LEED, but more focused on wellness and on the actual occupants in the buildings. And the WELL certification is actually a very rigorous and expensive certification for buildings to get. I think the average building spends like $185,000 to get the certification. So up until this past year, it's been really hard for buildings to get it. It's a very prestigious certification. But when the pandemic hit, they came out with this new certification called Well Health Safety Rating. And that has become my main focus at my job is helping buildings achieve this certification. And it's basically a subset of features from the full-blown certification. And they're all focused on the pandemic. So it looks at all different types of features from does the company provide sick leave to the employees to the ventilation requirements in the building. And they actually recently launched a huge ad campaign with celebrities like Lady Gaga, Michael B. Jordan, and Jennifer Lopez. So that is going to be airing on a bunch of different TV channels. If listeners see that on TV, that's what I am referring to. <laughs> That is so cool. Well, I have to say that when you were saying building report cards, that got me thinking about investors that look at ESG portfolios and saying if a company is particularly sustainable, if they have a high ESG rating. So that's what I'm thinking of you do in the context of buildings. Is that like relatively correct? You're scoring them? Yeah, that's exactly correct. So all the different real estate portfolios basically submit their data from the past two years and get these different scores at the end. And I think it's becoming pretty competitive. So one portfolio wants to get a higher score than their competitors, which is really cool that they're all competing to try and become more sustainable. Yeah, that's a good type of competition to encourage. And I also think it's really cool that you work in buildings and the built environment, because I think that there's also sometimes this sense that the built environment is an industry or a space just for contractors or just for construction. 
And there is so much work that goes into it from, I mean, even you can think of architecture. Yes, of course. But thinking about the actual activities that go on within the building is crazy. It's crazy to think about how much work has to go into having a sustainable upkept HVAC system. You know, there's so many intricacies of sustainable built environments that are not talked about nearly enough. And I have to ask, did you have a lot of experience in the built environment before you got into this role? You said you didn't go to school for engineering, but what what did you go to school for? I actually went to the University of Georgia and I got my degree in environmental economics. And then I got a certificate, which was basically, um, it's sort of like a minor program, just a little different. Um, I got a certificate in sustainability. So that was where I like really got introduced to the sustainability field. And honestly, in college, I really did not learn that much about the intersection of sustainability with the built environment. I think we started learning a little bit about LEED and you hear about all of these new really fancy like living buildings and net zero buildings, but I never really thought about how existing buildings are trying to become more sustainable. And that was really what drew me to the job was that they talked about how if we really want to make a big impact, there's so many buildings that already exist. So that needs to be a huge focus and really an area where we can make such a huge impact because obviously these living buildings and net zero buildings are incredible. And if we're going to be building new buildings, that's definitely the way to go. But we also have all of these older buildings that need to be brought up to the same sustainability standard. I could not agree more. And I'm also so interested in this conversation, actually, because to pull the curtain back a little bit, I'm currently studying to get my lead GA, which is like the most basic of all basic, but I don't know anything about buildings. So it's been like a really not I don't know anything, but I have a pretty basic understanding of like building and built environment sustainability. And it's been a really interesting thing for me to learn more deeply about because I don't think that I really understood what goes on from that even upkeep side. Like you were saying, we have a lot of buildings that already exist. So to be able to go in and improve the quality of life, the quality of living for communities, for office buildings, for all of these things, it's such a keenly important part of sustainable communities that we just don't talk more about. Yeah, definitely. And it's really cool to see kind of the progression of specifically LEED. They have like the newest version out that's currently in beta testing and it focuses on the things I feel like come to mind when you think of sustainability, like energy and water. But they also look at so many different components like transportation. So how are people getting to the building and what are the carbon emissions that come from that? and the waste at the building. And then finally, they look at um, the indoor air quality and how people are satisfied with that building. So it's really cool to kind of see the three pillars of sustainability all come into focus through these new versions of the certifications. Yeah, absolutely. And it's interesting also to think about LEED as a certification system. You were mentioning that the other uh, system that you work in is pretty expensive to get buildings certified in. And LEED is also really expensive. So to be able to say that an organization has even one LEED certified building is a really big deal. And a lot of the time it's put as this like press miracle that is in all of the publications and all of the front pages of all the brochures. And thinking about like how much 
prestige we can put on sustainability is also super cool. Like you were saying, it gets competitive and it gets like, who's going to have the best score, who's going to be the most sustainable and encouraging that competition, I guess, is like so keenly important to how we're going to progress this. Yeah, definitely. I totally agree. It's been really cool to see and to work with all these buildings who genuinely want to get better and they want to become more sustainable. And I think the pandemic has really shed light on the importance of sustainability and the importance of not just the environmental and economic components, but that social component and human wellness as well has really kind of increased in popularity and become more of a focus. I have to ask you, thinking about the pandemic and thinking that you've been in a role that's changed a lot in the last year, how do you feel your industry, I suppose, engineering, buildings, built environment, how do you feel like that's going to change for you in the next like five years? So for the next five years, I really see the industry just becoming a lot more and even more so focused on the importance of sustainability, especially in these existing buildings. And I think with the well health safety rating coming out that I talked about, and I think how they're really trying to introduce that into the public with these ad campaigns, it's going to help people realize the importance of their health and safety being in a building. Honestly, before I started at this job, I would have never thought of how the building that I go into and how we're in buildings most of the day, every day, how those impact my health and my safety. So I think that's just really going to come to the forefront. And I think that the general population is going to be exposed and really become more curious about sustainability and demanding that from the buildings that they're in. Victoria, welcome to the show. Welcome to EcoChic. I am thrilled to have you here. For our listeners, can you tell us where you're calling in from? Yeah, I'm calling in from San Diego, California. I was born and raised here, but I left for college. So I just moved back for the position that I'm in, which is super exciting. Good. Well, I'm excited that you mentioned that already because let's get into it. Tell me a little bit about your current role. What are you doing? My position is retail brand experience associate at Avocado Green Brands. So I work in our La Jolla Experience Center. Avocado is a really like more like a sustainable lifestyle brand. And we just happen to make like really good mattresses. So it's kind of like a platform where we get to talk about sustainability with customers and like the importance of being like a conscious consumer and like where their money is going towards. And it's a really nice platform to be in starting that conversation with people if they like have never had someone talk to them about it. Oh, that's cool. So Avocado is a brand, a product brand. They sell a product, but you don't necessarily work on selling the product so much as the mission. Is that correct? Like the actual sustainability education side of things? It's a little bit of both because I do like work in retail. So I do like talk to people that come into the experience center and are shopping around for mattresses and trying them out. So it is like a retail position, but within that conversation, like I get to talk to them about all materials. We get like people ranging, they've done their research and they understand and they are conscious consumers. And then we get people that totally like don't know anything. And 
So it's like fun either way to be able to bring that up. Cool. I was telling you before we started recording that mattresses is a pretty niche thing to get into, a pretty niche product sector. So what was your background before this? Did you always have a vision for yourself in this current role? I never did. I went to college um, at UC Riverside and I have a sustainability degree. And the way that they built the major at my university was that it was within the gender and sexualities department, which took me a while to understand. Like when I first started out, I wasn't connecting the dots really until I was like in my upper division classes, but it's definitely a lot more based on like social sustainability versus like the environmental sustainability, who totally different topics to tackle. Um, But that's also what drew me to avocado was like my understanding of sustainability and how my education kind of shaped me to be a conscious consumer. So avocado was a brand that I had already known about because I know how good they were doing in that aspect. And so I'd always had my eye on them. Yeah, absolutely. I was telling you that I love avocado as a brand because I see, I don't want this to like turn into a big ad for avocado, but I like the work that they do with everyone that they work with online because it is so heavily focused on that educational piece and that lifestyle piece. And when you're talking to customers coming into your center, trying out mattresses, you were saying some of them are really educated and some of them aren't. And when you have to make that case for a high quality, big investment purchase, something that's sustainable and something that is supportive of an ethical supply chain and like all of the things that come along with making a really conscious purchase, how do you have those conversations with people who have never thought about organic mattresses before? Yeah, it can be tricky at times. Like you definitely have to read the customer and kind of tell how much do they understand in terms of the sustainability aspect, because we get people that it varies, like people that come to Avocado because we are a sustainable brand and people that come to Avocado just because like now we're building a reputation for having really comfortable mattress and like all they care about. But there is still that aspect that we want to educate them in that case that it is a comfortable mattress but like there's so much more behind it and like how important that is so it can get tricky if like it's a good mattress and it's like comparable to other mattresses but um yeah it's still like really important to have that conversation because that's the big thing that sets us apart yeah yeah I imagine that at the end of the day, if you're a consumer that has the opportunity to look at, you know, three or four different mattresses that like, they might as well all be the same. They're all comparable in comfort level. If you're choosing Mm -hmm. to purchase an organic mattress or a healthy quote unquote mattress, because there's all of these studies now about like flammable couches and things. Anyway, so I don't want to get into the weeds of that, but there's, (laughs) there's so many different kind of consumer decisions that have to go into that purchase. If if quality seems to be the same, it's like, why would you choose something organic and something natural? And now being in the conscious consumer retail space, I would love to ask you, pick your brain a little bit, and this is kind of a heavy question, so you can totally shut me down, but what do you think your dream career would be if you were to stay in this field? Oh my goodness. That's definitely tricky. Because I never, like, even in my undergrad, like, I never had, like, a clear picture of what I wanted 
to do. I just knew that I wanted to enjoy going to work and like be able to educate people on some sort of level. And I love what I do now. And like, I definitely see myself obviously like not staying in this position forever, but I think that right now, like my, um, my skill sets are like best used in this position. And I feel like I'm really contributing to the company, like where I am, but overall, I don't know. I'm pretty flexible and I like to see like what opportunities come up and like, I'll always like hear out an opportunity if it came up. So, yeah. 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 Well, thank you so much for sharing that. Like I said, it's kind of a heavy question, but before we started recording, we were chatting about how there really is room for all career types in the sustainability space. And I feel like being able to say I'm open and I'm flexible and like I will hear out any opportunity that comes to me is so important in the conscious consumer space because it's one thing to talk about climate action and I think that's really really valuable but I also think it's really important when you're looking at that individual level to say all right like how is my thousand dollars going to be best used I'm going to buy a mattress I'm going to keep it for eight years like that's a long that's a huge commitment yeah so being able to say like the consumer space needs work and the consumer space needs people that care is just as important as that big time, like federal policy that we're advocating for. Mm -hmm. No, definitely. I totally agree. And like a lot of people ask the whole question about, you know, why do I want to buy a mattress here when they know that they are looking at other places too. And like I said, it's like the big thing that sets us apart is the fact that we are in charge of our entire supply chain. And it's like a lot of companies use the same materials we do, um, but we're one of the only companies to co-own our own farm. So like that really sets us apart. And that's so cool. That's so cool. Thank you for sharing that. If you were to talk to yourself in undergrad, what kind of advice would you have given yourself knowing what you know now about sustainable careers? I would tell myself, to always be open and not be so like beat down when opportunities are like in front of you, but they might not be the right one for you because there's always something around the corner that is going to be like the perfect fit. And the sustainability industry is like so diverse and there's so many different opportunities and new things keep popping up. So I think just being like really flexible if you're like looking in the industry and just being really patient with yourself because it is a new and up and coming like different like careers and there's always like room to also pave your own path because it's so new. Yeah that's excellent advice. I think like you were saying it's such a new industry that I don't think I would have told myself in undergrad, this is exactly what you're going to be doing for the rest of your life, because there's so much coming out, again, on the consumer side, but also on the technology side. Like I could have, opportunity had or had presented itself to me, I could have dedicated my life to like solar batteries, you know, like you could have told me anything and I would have been like, yeah. I'll take it. Like that works for me. Exactly. And, yeah. yeah. And we don't live in a time where you have to have the same career for 40 years. Like there really is so much opportunity to grow and shift and Thank you so much for sharing all of that. Yeah, I think that actually was one of the things that scared me the most, like coming out of undergrad was I felt like I had to pick something and like be stuck with it for the rest of my life. And 
that was one thing that was really like stressing me out at the time. And so if I would have told myself to be a little more flexible and like relax and that it's not something that you're stuck with like forever and there's room to grow even like when you choose a career, I think that would have eased my nerves a little bit more. Megan, welcome to the show. Before we get started, where are you calling in from? I am in the Fort Worth, Texas area. So recovering well, from so Snowvid. Yeah, oh God, Snowvid, what an awful, but very accurate term. Thank you for joining me. I appreciate you making the time today to chat a little bit about your career. So tell me a little bit about what it is that you do. So I am on the ESG reporting team for a medium to large size tech company. And my main job is working on our annual ESG report. A lot of companies have them now and also managing the other disclosures that we have. So we report out to several other frameworks and standards that are national and international. Um, Many companies are reporting out to those as kind of a basic disclosure. Yeah, almost like an accreditation, it sounds like, or like a submittal process, something that you need to be rated on. Yeah, it's an annual submission. Most of them are questionnaires, surveys. A big tagline in this this line of work is you can't manage what you don't measure. So a lot of it is around numbers and making sure everything is getting measured. And then also the standards and frameworks really help uh, standardize across industries and across businesses so you can compare apples to apples what different companies are doing. And it's not just soft stories about planting a tree. It's hard measurements on your emissions, your waste, your water usage, all of those sorts of things. Yeah, I'm glad you got into that. I actually have a post-it on my computer that says you can't manage what you don't measure. And it's such a good reminder because I think in sustainability in general, there is a little bit of pressure to make things fluffy and palatable, especially when you're presenting at a large company or if you're reporting things out, that's a whole different story as opposed to saying like, I do sustainability work that makes people feel good. So I think the angle of measuring things is really important to ESG work in general. So for anyone who's listening, who doesn't know about ESG, can you define it for us and tell me just a little bit about that kind of nitty gritty? Yeah. So ESG stands for environment, social, and governance. It's sort of the evolution of, if you've heard of CSR or corporate social responsibility, but it's moving into a little bit of a broader space. That third pillar governance is kind of the main difference between those two things, really focusing on business ethics, transparency, and how your strategy is being governed throughout the business. So those are kind of the two main terms you'll hear often are ESG and CSR. Interesting. So when we talk about ESG ethics, transparency, I immediately think of supply chains. Is that something that you are like intimately involved in in some way and measuring and looking at? Yeah. So supply chain is a important component. We work very closely with the supply chain team and it's one of the more difficult parts because you're getting data from so many different uh, characters and so many different places and managing all that data and, and making it consistent across that supply chain uh, is one of the more difficult aspects, I would think. 
Interesting. Interesting and fascinating. I love talking about supply chains, but with this kind of work that's so interdisciplinary, you work with so many characters and it seems like you work with a lot of data, you work with a lot of social components and you think a lot about where things come from, where things go. It sounds like you could have a background in anything to do this. Like you could be an economist, you could be an environmentalist. Like what is your background? Did you go to business school for this? Like how do you get into ESG reporting work? Yeah, so that's one of the things I really like is it does bring so many different disciplines together and so many different backgrounds all into this one space. But personally, um, my background, I grew up an environmentalist, um, big part to my grandmother who was uh, very impactful on me growing up. And then in high school, I took an AP environmental science class and realized that environmental science was something I could actually study and potentially a career field uh, for my life. And before that, I had had a pretty narrow view of you grow up, you go to college, maybe you become a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher. That was, you know, the basic framework. And realizing I could study that, I went to UT, University of Texas, and majored in environmental science. I spent some time on some research projects there. And my last year there, I ended up interning for the company I work for now on their sustainability teams, more specifically and recently transitioned into this full-time role on their ESG reporting team. So I came from the environmental science space, but a lot of people around me have come from definitely the business space or like health and safety. That's a big component that we deal with a lot. Lots of different perspectives. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's really cool. And it sounds like also this internship that you had that eventually landed you a full-time job must have also been very impactful. So tell me a little bit about that internship. Like, how did you get it? Did you have an in at the company? Did you just apply online? Like what happened? Yeah, there was actually a partnership between our company and the Environmental Science Institute at the University of Texas. And I had seen some upperclassmen who had been involved in this internship. And I always had sort of an entrepreneurial mindset growing up. I was always you know, trying to start businesses when I was way too young and uh, doing those sorts of things. So whenever I found out about this kind of meld between the business world and the sustainability world, I was really interested, uh, really meshed perfectly with kind of these two, two different sides of me. That's awesome. Is there anything about the work that you do now, knowing that it was so interdisciplinary, knowing that you already had this year long internship that surprised you about the job or even surprised you about ESG in general? I guess one of the biggest surprises is how prevalent it is across industries. I think of myself as someone who's a conscious consumer and does some brand research before I buy a lot of things, but it wasn't until I started this job that I realized, oh, all of these big companies are coming out with these annual reports that are hundreds of pages long and might have additional more specific reports on supply chain or diversity and inclusion or these indexes that provide all the answers to these different frameworks. It is becoming a lot of a bigger deal than I think I I knew before I'd taken this position. Yeah. Does it change the way that you shop now? Are you really hyper-focused on brand reporting now? I'd say yes and no. I don't want to read 
100 pages of a sustainability report before I decide what I'm purchasing. But I think pretty quickly you can get a feel for whether it's a greenwashing or whether there's some substantial work that's going into these programs. And I'd say I definitely try and do that for most things. Yeah, I completely understand. I'm a very nervous conscious consumer. Like I look for those reports and I'm not willing to sit down and read hundred pages, but I'll definitely read the executive summary and get a feel for the things that are important to me, like diversity and inclusion. And I want to make sure that I don't buy something that's riddled with child labor and all of the basic things that I like to care about. But then when a company feels like they're doing everything they can, I get very nervous. And I'm like, what did I miss? Am I being duped? I'm so nervous about that. I guess one of the other things that was kind of new for me to learn is how important ESG reporting is becoming to the investor community, which is a really great trend that we're seeing. Um, BlackRock CEO, as probably a lot of your listeners uh, have seen, always comes out with this statement around ESG reporting and climate change and what needs to happen in that space. And so seeing how seriously investors are taking ESG reporting has been really interesting to me and and made me feel good about the direction that we're moving. I completely agree. And I'm really glad you brought up investing because before I became more aware of CSG, it never occurred to me that I could be investing in things that I didn't personally believe in. And it got me thinking a lot about ESG. Now I read really into portfolios of companies before I commit to anything. And it's not like I'm out here, Jeff Bezos, like trading stocks left and right. But again, it's like a nervous consumer thing. It's like, if I'm going to put this kind of money into any sort of company, this kind of, you know, like if it's a hundred dollars, like I want that hundred dollars to be in the right place. So I love that you mentioned investing. And I think as an individual, that's kind of the best place where you can think about long-term putting your money where your mouth is like voting with your dollar. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And one of the other big stakeholders that um, ESG reporting has become really important to, and I think it's in large part due to our sort of generation's interest and care in these issues is employees. So a lot of employees want to work for businesses that are, are making progress in these environmental and social spaces and are being leaders so that's another big component of ESG reporting is, is attracting and retaining that employee base. Yeah, that's an excellent point too, because it definitely feels like regardless of any sort of federal policy, the private sector is definitely moving in a more ESG heavy focused future. And it seems like companies are regulating themselves and customers are demanding it, consumers are demanding it. So to know that you're on the side of making the corporate space more quote unquote sustainable, transparent, keeping itself accountable. That's a really empowering place to be in this equation for you. I imagine. Yeah. That's one thing I love about it is the impact. It's just magnified. I always like to think about it in terms of if I can reduce one piece of packaging that goes out to all of our customers, the scale of that impact is so large and has you know such a ripple effect. And um, going back to your point about like the federal government, our company doesn't have to wait until 
certain things get passed or until legislation is requiring things. Uh, a lot of companies want to be innovators and leaders in this space to say, we were the first ones to do this, or we're being pushed in that general direction, even by peers and competitors to, to follow these major ESG trends. And so that's been really exciting. Even in my short time in ESG reporting, I've seen so much progress and so much push internally and externally that it's, it's a great place to be. One last thing, if you're interested in this space, and like we said, you can have a variety of backgrounds and be involved in this space, look at different companies' positions or look within the company you already work for. I know there's a lot of ways to internally move within companies or even just start asking what your company is doing in this space. That might be the catalyst that your company needs to start being a leader in ESG reporting and start getting involved. Thanks again for tuning in to today's episode of Eco Chic. I love a Chic Chats episode. Thank you so much to our guests for sharing their stories and their insights. And I hope you enjoyed their advice and their feedback and all of the information you now have on what it means to be a sustainability professional and craft a career in this space wherever you are. So thanks so much for tuning in. Thank you again to our guests. If you enjoyed this show, make sure you send it to a friend. Share it on your Instagram story. Tag me at Eco Chic Podcast. I want to know what you want to hear next. And if you're still here, I hope you rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts. It really makes a difference, helps me out a lot, helps me reach new people. You can follow the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode of Eco Chic. As a quick reminder, we are reading Hood Feminism this month for the book club. Eco Chic Book Club is an extra episode every month, comes out towards the end of the month. Again, that's Hood Feminism Notes from the Women, A Movement Forgot by Mika, M-I-K-K-I, Kendall, and I'll share more about book club on social media. So thanks for tuning in, and I will talk to you very soon. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.